This is Polyoptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. Now, from Washington, D.C., Here's Adam Belmar. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and it's only on POTUS, Politics of the United States. This week's State of the Union, the Republican response, and Watergate 2013. Then the truth behind Facebook with digital strategist Christopher Brown. And then polyoptics civil disobedience style with the head of Tricom Associates, Scott Tribitz. But first, I'm joined here in our D.C. studios by my very good friend, Arun Chaudhry, filmmaker, author, and former cameraman to the President of the United States, Barack Obama. Welcome back to the program, Arun. Great to be here, as always. You know, it's, it's one of those weeks where if you're a POTUS listener, you've heard nothing but so too, and now you actually understand that stands for State of the Union. Um, but as two presidential image makers, uh, you, you usually hear uh, about the amount of practice and the preparation that goes into a State of the Union. Was it your experience in the Obama administration that that held as well? Yeah, and I think for this administration, it's particularly interesting because, you know, the president is a writer and has such a firm hand in his speeches that there are these two separate tracks, like preparing for the spectacle and rehearsal of the night and then getting the speech ready. And they're sort of not on the same track. And I I don't know when you guys started, but actually the president doesn't even think about rehearsing the speech until the day of, usually, because so much concern goes into the writing of it. That That's not surprising to me, considering the fact that uh, this president uses a teleprompter as frequently as he does. The stagecraft for him uh, of, of greeting an entire room and communicating not only to the people who were there, but also the folks at home through the camera lens is much more natural to him than it was to George W. Bush. We also took a two-track approach. The president had a, a, a big hand in crowd crafting speeches like this, um, and he worked very closely with his writers and, and certainly internalized it and made all of these messages his own, but the, the, the theatrical element of it was something that we certainly practiced more than just a day in advance. Um, the, the, the truth about this is that it's such an important night to get your agenda out there, to set the tone for the year ahead. Obviously, the first State of the Union for the president in his second term. But there should be a lesson learned here. Every year we talk about what it means to prepare yourself for giving a national address. And it seems like every year the Republicans aren't listening. And they put up Mm -hmm. their best and their brightest just to sort of punt. I mean, let's talk about Watergate right off the bat. Did you see the moment where uh, uh, brand-new Florida senator, still a freshman, Marco Rubio, who's carrying the torch for the Republican Party, is so parched that he has to lean over and grab a bottle of water out of frame run? Brought to you by Poland Spring. Yeah. It was a great branded moment. But uh, my experience was, and I want to know what you think, is that there was just very little preparation with him with regard to what it meant to stand up and give a a prompted speech. He had never obviously thought before he grabbed the water, what do I do if I'm thirsty? Because it wasn't that he needed water, which is totally fine and totally legit. It was that he had this guilty look and like, you know, look like he was a fox stealing a hen out of the hen house when he was like getting a drink of water. And I think that was the problem. It was this sort of hesitation and this weirdness because I think no one objects to the guy taking a drink. You're right. No one objects to taking a drink, but it was crafted, I thought, poorly. And I want to go on yeah. the record with that. And I was fe- far away from him, right? He really had to go someplace to get <laughs> it. It was really <laughs> ill-conceived. But beyond the water, um, it was 
a mishmash of polyoptic signals. We had in the foreground the new face of the Republican Party, someone upon whom uh, many hopes are pinned. He's on the cover of Time magazine, juxtaposed with a very staid, very ornate and Oval Office-esque background. The six panes of glass with the millions, uh, very similar to what you would see if the president were addressing from behind. So you you may have liked that, but I felt like it stood in stark contrast insofar as young guy, old background, you know, you knew it wasn't his office. He had, he had, we'd been told, and, and some people tossed to it, letting us know that this was one of the speaker's uh, meeting rooms. And yet you've got this personal photo, which was plenty big enough for us to sort of, when we got bored looking or listening, we could study that. And then just outside the window, there was enough of a gap that when the president's motorcade decided to leave, all I saw were lights and everybody fleeing That is hill. true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had a lot of people asking me questions about that, actually, when it was going on. Um, but tell me, Arun, what do you think about uh, the amount of preparation it requires to do something like this? Was this an honest-to-God polyoptics faux pas on the part of Republicans to have not prepared uh, their front man, Marco Rubio, to, to do this properly? I think they put too much pressure on these uh, you know, young guys to kind of knock it out of the park, hit a home, you know. So either they end up hitting a home run or striking out, as opposed to giving them the tools they need just to go up there and do a pretty good job, you know. Well, the tools that they need are way beyond just a good speech, and you touched on that a minute yeah. ago uh, with the president, of Barack Obama, taking a two-pronged approach. One, the writing and crafting of the message of the script. But then the theatrics, where the pauses should come, where the the the, the applause is going to be, and Absolutely. as if like a maestro, uh, the president whipped that crowd with emotion. Um, he brought it to this wonderful crescendo towards the end of the speech. Let's have a listen to that. Ideas parents, Nate and Cleo, are in this chamber tonight, along with more than two dozen Americans whose lives have been torn apart by gun violence. They deserve a vote. They deserve a vote. They deserve a vote. Gabby Giffords deserves a vote. The families of Newtown deserve a vote. The families of Aurora deserve a vote. The families of Oak Creek and Tucson and Blacksburg and the countless other communities ripped open by gun violence, they deserve a simple vote. They deserve they deserve a simple vote. You heard that, and it just, he whipped people into a frenzy with that call for a vote, that people deserve that vote. Gabby Giffords deserved that vote. The family of that poor girl who was shot down just a mile from the president's house. Your thoughts on the stagecraft of Barack Obama in the State of the Union? Well, you know, I thought because so much of it was a very typical State of the Union, you know, you, you go through, you know, a laundry list of issues you want to take care of. And actually, I thought it was quite boring at first that someone, you know, who was just sort of watching in my office while working on something else. And then all of a sudden you could feel a turn. Right. And I don't think if that's. I don't think that that's ju- that that's happenstance. I think that's exactly right. You know, if you're going to start on a great crescendo, if you're going to build a drumbeat, you start from a blank slate. So I think he took us to a place where we knew we were supposed to be 
and then was like, well, let's talk about this and let's talk about this in a different way than we normally do in this house. Yeah, the, the, the State of the Union oftentimes, and I think Josh King would echo this if he were here with us today, uh, is, is kind of a, a kitchen sink affair. I mean, everything gets thrown in. It's more about what you didn't say than what you did. Every special interest group mm-hmm. that nobody you know wants to admit that they have to kowtow to has got to get their You didn't line. mention the owls. It's the most important thing to us. So like whatever, everybody thinks that their one line in the State of the Union is like a make or break of their issue, right? And everybody who got their one line is making hay with it. They're out they're jamming as hard as they can on the president set this as an agenda point. It's ours and we follow with him and we've got to muster support against it. But it, it really, to me, even though it was a kitchen sink kind of speech where everything got thrown in there, it occurs to me that he did it in a fresh way. I felt like the way the narrative that he gave us as he took us through the journey was done thoughtfully, that he husbanded the emotion that he tried to elicit from the crowd in a thoughtful way. You know, there's no question in my mind that this is a specific part of the speech that the president not only had a a strong hand in probably, you know, uh, writing, but actually in conceiving of. This is something I'd like to do tonight. It's probably something that he said a lot in the preliminary meetings about it. This is something I'd like to do. This is something that's important to me. And you can tell, you know, whoever your candidate is. Well, take us inside those meetings. I mean, you've spent so much time behind the scenes and working with the president, crafting, among other things, this message that he gives every single week to the American people through your lens and now the lens of your successors. I mean, how thoughtful is he in putting this together? Is it just sort of extraordinarily? You know, I wrote a lot about this in my book. Uh, you know, it takes you through the a lot of the first cameraman. It's that's recently right. out. It's a great book, and I've commended it Thank before you. on this show. And honestly, I think if people want to have some insight into what what it is to work for and deliver the visual message for a president, you've got to read Arun Chaudhry's book, The First Camera. But go ahead, Arun. You know, so uh, I talk a lot about sort of typical living in the bubble, and one of those things is that we, you know, everyone, I'm sure you were the same way. You see all the drafts of the speeches come around and you see them change and you see them evolve as people weigh in and there's a speech list and, and various people weigh in on it. I was not someone who weighed in on it, but it was something I needed to know to do my job. Not the case with the State of the Union. You do not see drafts of it. You know, yeah, you just I, I see... would have to concur. That was my experience in the speech writing realm of which I was not a part, but part of the communications department uh, at the White House. Uh, we, we had to keep a very keen eye. We were sort of distilling the bumper sticker, the message, and trying to figure out how we could reinforce a visual element from it. So you had to take your cues but the State of the Union was it's a whole too precious, and it will be leaked. But they they hope it doesn't get leaked until five p.m. that day, as opposed to you know five p.m. two days before. Uh, so you, the, your sort of plot points is you see it come from others. You see other people sort of appealing. Can this go in? Can this go in? And then it's funny, you know. Normally, um, I shoot the beginnings of a lot of meetings with the speechwriting staff, and uh, usually the the morning of the State of the Union, the president just wants to know because he's had such a heavy hand in it that he knows everything that's in there. He just wants to know how long it is. How long have we gotten it down to? Is it down to about 17 minutes? Like, that sounds pretty good. Like, you know, let's make sure we get this thing It's funny because you think about how long a State of the Union address is, it it really is, you know, difficult to judge because there's so much up and down. I thought, and this is just to get crazy. I'm going to get crazy on you here for a second here on Polyoptics on POTUS. What if the President of the United States had said, hey, let's try this a new way? Everybody sit on your hands, whether you like it or you don't. No applause. We're going to get through this quickly, and I'm going to be serious. We don't need the partisanship and the show of support that comes with every one line. I feel like the president, this president, could get away with that. Can anyone get away with that? I mean, I think we... Even we're insiders, right? We're here. So forget the public. They don't understand when people do this stuff. We're 
we're already questioning why all this stuff happens. But at the same time, the first person to say, no, we're not going to do that. The first person to say, hey, I'd rather not go to the G20 meeting. Can't we do this on a Google Hangout? Can't all the world leaders just get together? You know, let's save $10 billion. No one's able to ask that question. And, 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 and But we did it here on Polyoptics. That's right. Um, let's, let's bring in uh, one of my closest friends, certainly an advisor uh, to me, um, Christopher Brown, who's the Director of Digital Strategy at QGA Public Affairs. Welcome to Polyoptics, Chris. Good to see you, Adam. Uh, Chris, uh, you know Arun pretty well. We've all worked together. Your job uh, focuses, uh, as ours do, but even at a higher level around digital advocacy and strategy, and you, you kept a close eye on, on what the, uh, the internet was doing uh, uh, around the State of the Union. Your take on what you saw from the president and what you saw from Senator Marco Rubio. Well, the State of the Union is one of these events in the United States where everybody watches it together. We are a culture now of time-shifted content. People love their DVRs. They drag things out over the course of the week. The Super Bowl and the State of the Union aren't like that. We all watch it together. We all experience it together. It's a shared cultural moment. And that plays out in social media because people want to respond in real time. and They want to see what their friends are responding to in real time. So Facebook is one place people do that. Twitter is another. Twitter is is all about real-time information. And there were certain moments throughout the speech and throughout the response, most notably Governor Rubio's Watergate moment, when Twitter exploded. Within moments, we had people creating Twitter handles for what the water bottle itself might be saying in a situation like this. Uh, It's easy to make light of these things, but people really do care more than what the media tells them. They care about what their friends think, what their friends tell them. This is the most important analysis that many voters will get over the course of the year. Do you feel like people... uh are getting their analysis off Twitter right away and not thinking about the speech the same way they may have beforehand, like having a quiet 20 minutes before they see their friend to be like, oh, I liked it or I didn't like it? We're absolutely seeing that. And it's not, did you like the speech? Were there things in it that resonated for you? People want to dissect every line, every moment, every standing ovation. And that's what Twitter is really good at. It's really bad at long-form analysis, the kind we used to have. It's really good for immediate gut reaction. You know, one of the things that I pay a lot of attention to these days, for a multitude of reasons, uh, being a father of two sons, Max and Sam Belmar, who love to listen to this show here on on POTUS, is is basic research, scientific research. And this is something that to me feels very nonpartisan. I, I've always identified myself as a, as a Republican, served in a Republican administration, run served uh, a Democratic president so ably. But basic research and scientific research is something that to me transcends. And I love always to hear the President of the United States talk about how much we have benefited as a culture and as a nation from the investments that we've made. And these investments that we've made, the ones that President Obama was talking about in the State of the Union, are ones that have been made across multiple presidencies going back uh, generations. And what he's basically saying is that for every dollar we invest, we harvest, you know, a huge multiple, Chris. And I felt like when he talked about it, when he gave the example, and I want to play it for folks right now, we'll talk about it in a second on the other side. Now, if we want to make the best products, we also have to invest in the best ideas. Every dollar we invested to map the human genome returned $140 to our economy. Every dollar. Today, our scientists are mapping the human brain to unlock the answers to Alzheimer's. They're developing drugs to regenerate damaged organs, devising new materials to make batteries 10 times more powerful. Now is not the time to gut 
these job-creating investments in science and innovation. Now is the time to reach a level of research and development not seen since the height of the space race. We need to make those investments. But Chris, as you heard the president, he's making a very cogent argument for something that people really have an affinity for and understand. It's not even that they have an affinity for it. It is something that is so vital to the success of this nation. Many people don't understand that every day in universities and in other places, scientists and researchers are working hard to find these new cures, these breakthrough medicines. But more than that, if we were to cut funding to these programs, it would be a very long time before we could restart it. It's not a faucet. You turn on the research, you turn off the research. we got to have graduate students. We need to have people coming up through the system, understanding these long-term research projects. All right. There's no doubt. I mean, the president is talking about a well that has already been primed. People whose entire lives are geared to go in this direction, to be the next leader in their field. And if we were to just cut the knees out from underneath them in the sequester, which I realize is really not a polyoptics element, but the way the president drew it out for us, I feel like it is. I feel like the president really connected on that. Well, I mean, you talk about the polyoptics of it. The sequester is the dangling dagger, like, you know threat that hang, oh, hanging over everyone's head. I mean, there definitely is. It's definitely a, a theatrical uh, maneuver. Uh, but I do think the part that I thought was most interesting about him uh, talking about science and addressing his issues was also dovetailing it into other issues, which I think is why State of the Union is such a, such a framework, because, you know, a lot of this with visas and other students trying to come in here, immigration actually is a big part of, uh, of this of this scientific push and research push, making sure the best and the brightest still want to come to America. And so I think being able to address these things not in a vacuum, but in a big speech, not in a little speech, it's on one topic, say, out of Science Foundation, but actually in the State of the Union allows him to show how important it is to the full fabric of, of an agenda. Yeah, that that's something that we're going to talk to Scott Tribitz about a little bit later in this episode of Polyoptics. He is sort of uh, made uh, a career out of... Uh, creating frontline polyoptics and, and, and really drawing characters together to make a point uh, in, in, in a similar way that the president has sort of picked out uh, individuals of note uh, that we can all relate to, to to help people digest and understand the larger point. You know, I want to take a left turn here for a second. It could be a right turn. It's just a turn, guys. It's, it's a turn. Um, Christopher Brown has a rap that I, I really enjoy and that I want to share with folks. Josh King... Um, confessed to me the other day that he really didn't understand Facebook, you know, at all. Certainly not beyond the way that most of us do uh, as users, end users. So, you know, Josh and I use Polyoptics uh, face, Facebook page and we communicate with our audience that way. And uh, Josh will post things personally, just as I will, to my friends and community. But Christopher, I want you to take a second to, to help pull the blinders off for all of us. Uh, this is a business, and this is something that, uh, well, you give them your line and help us walk into it. I, I hate to break this to you, Adam, but if there is a product or a service that you use and you don't pay for it, you're not the customer. You are the product. And in, that's exactly what Facebook is to you. Well, help, help, help people. I understand that, but I really want to dig down. I, I mean, listen, guys, if you're listening to this and you're thinking, how does this relate to polyoptics? This is hugely important. This dovetails with what uh, digital advocacy is going on on K Street. This is uh, right up against uh, the cutting edge of what Obama and Blue Engine and other folks, Revolution Messaging, are doing every day. Uh, Facebook is a monetized 
place to be able to drill down to the utmost level to find exactly the type of people that you're looking for. Chris, walk us through it. Facebook is a large, publicly traded corporation whose primary focus is learning as much about its nearly a billion users as is humanly possible, and then using that massive data set to advertise to those people in the most effective way. And as advertisers, whether it's a brand marketer or a political campaign or an advocacy organization or a cause, uh, we're all using that data in a very similar way uh, to the way Coca-Cola would be, for example, or Ford cars. What we do is we want to know who is the most persuadable core of our audience and how do we reach them and in what way can we craft these messages to get right to the, the creamy nougat center of that audience and influence them in the most effective way. Arun, uh, nougat. Yeah, it's like the chewy center of the mm. Tootsie Pop and Mark Zuckerberg know how to just get right up in there. Um, and I'll tell you why. Uh, because for average folks who didn't need a huge advertising company or didn't need um, you know, great counsel on how to how to figure out how to drill down and find this group. Facebook is giving every advertiser in a very equalizing kind of way the the deep insight into people and what they like and who they are that could come from no one else but you. You. You're listening. You. I'm talking to you. I mean it's instant authenticity, it right? It is. And you know why? Because we self-identify all of this information. I tell them that I'm a Jew and that I'm a Republican, that I live in Falls Church, Virginia, that I have two kids, that I have a dog, I've got a car, you know, whatever it is that I like, whatever it is that I follow, it soaks all of it up like a sponge, Christopher. And, and, and give us an idea of how it allows people who are willing to spend money, even small sums of money, the granularity to go back and find people. This is something that I recommend every American do because every every user of Facebook has the same abilities as the big brands in New York and Washington do to create an ad, to create a campaign, to launch something new. I would recommend clicking the ads button next time you're on Facebook and checking out how it works because what you're seeing is what we as marketers see. We can drill down based on not only what you like, the pages that you're interested in, but how many of your friends are interested in something? Because we know that if your friends are into something, you're probably into it too. We can triangulate those ideas. Uh, you can go in and you can see we can narrow it down to your zip code, to your age, to your relationship status. If you recently stated that you got engaged on Facebook, you probably got a lot of congratulations from your friends. But now as marketers, we can target to you specifically. Weddings are really expensive. This is a great way for people in that business to target their audiences. We can slice and dice an audience from hundreds, of, probably 150 million people in the United States alone, all the way down to maybe as few as a few dozen or a hundred in your local community. The problem with the old style of advertising is that when I buy a page of advertising in the New York Times, hundreds of thousands of people will see that ad, to be sure. The overwhelming majority will never be my customers. In the case of an advocacy organization, we're never going to persuade them. It's not going to happen. This allows us to, to husband our resources in a way that we only reach the people that we know we can get to, that we can influence, well, whether they become supporters of ours or customers of a, of a brand. This is extraordinary, and it's scary as heck if you're in the newspaper business or the broadcasting business. In the end, uh, the people who are really great at tracking who you are and where you go is really about that. It's tracking. They follow what website you go to. They put cookies on your machine, and and and, and websites cooperate. I mean, this is how I just sold uh, sold books. You know, if you want, if you visit, I'm perfectly transparent about this. If you visit firstcameraman.com, you will be served ads suggesting you might want to buy that book until you buy it. 
Absolutely. And, and I will follow you around the internet you know, one of the suggesting things, you may want to buy this book. This this is something that some people realize and sometimes they don't at all. But uh if you go to Hellsberg Diamonds, for example, and you decide to put something in your cart and then you don't buy it, maybe they advertise to you about Valentine's Day, maybe you were thinking about a birthday present for your wife or your girlfriend or both, and um, you decide not to buy it, it doesn't just go away. They start serving you ads. They know that you were there. They know that they got you close to buying and that you probably just need one more well-timed uh, little push little, little push. push to get there. Chris, talk for a second uh, about how we do it in Washington, D.C. when we're trying to think about um, influencers because it, 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 it's really important. Scott Tribitz is going to talk about this, again, just in a little bit from Tricom Associates, somebody who, who is on the front lines of polyoptics creating events. But when you try and harness that and you bring it back to certain influencers who you want to be aware of what's happened, how do you, how do you target certain people at the Pentagon, the, the executive office of the president, Capitol Hill? Uh, is Facebook the easiest, cheapest way, or are there other ways that people are using the optics of, of visual campaigning? Well, I'll say very frankly that there's no one solution that's going to work for every campaign. And with that disclaimer out of the way, there are lots of ways to do it. But let's think about audiences for a minute. We think about the rings of a bullseye. You have the very center of your bullseye. Those are the people that you most want to target. Depending on the, the campaign you want to run here in Washington, it could be members of Congress. It could be senior administration officials. Uh, it could be somebody in the procurement department at a major agency or at the Pentagon that you want to sell your stuff to. Uh, and then you sort of move in concentric circles away from that. You have their staff. You have people who influence them. You have reporters who write things that they then read and understand and take to be credible. You can influence all of these circles of individuals to get to the very few decision makers. And, and in Washington, frankly, there are not a lot of decision makers. It's all about getting to a committee chairman or somebody in the administration who will either let your thing go forward or not, whatever it happens to be. It could be that you want a bill changed. You could be want a law changed. You could want a law not changed, which is, is something that's that's very common here, uh, fighting against change because the status quo has been very lucrative for a lot of people. Uh, or you want to sell something to the government, which lots of people do every day. Uh, it's all about figuring out how can we most likely get your issue advanced to the place where you want it. And advertising is certainly a piece of that. But you have to be authentic about it. You have to be transparent. You have to say who you are, why you're advertising. you got to have a really compelling message. I can't just serve you an ad, and if it doesn't have any meaty substance to it, it's not going to do anything. Uh, so you need to have really crystal clear messaging in everything that you do, and you need to have content that is compelling enough to get people to stick around. It's not enough to have a pithy slogan at the bottom of an advertisement. you got to have deep dive content. you got to have video content, which is wildly powerful for, for changing minds and telling stories. Uh, and as Arun knows, that's something that is continuing to grow in, at breakneck pace, especially in, in the quarters of power in Madison Avenue and K Street. When you mentioned uh, you know, different audiences, the ones you mentioned, they're not actually Facebook groups as much as they are physical locations. And so I would uh, also echo you talking about ways to reach them. Geofencing is the best way to reach congressmen, because guess what? They're all in the Capitol. And guess what? You can actually just serve text messages to that location. Yeah, uh, you're listening to Polyoptics here on Sirius XM POTUS, uh, Channel 124. I'm Adam Belmar, uh, joined in studio by Arun Chaudhry and Christopher Brown, Director of Digital Strategy at QGA Public Affairs. Um, Arun of, of Revolution Messaging, a uh, boutique uh, 
uh, firm here in Washington serving the needs of uh, progressive movements, uh, a filmmaker of incredible note, a friend of the President of the United States, and somebody who's opened all of our eyes to what's going on behind the scenes inside the White House. Um, I want to ask you guys to comment for a second. Uh, There's something else I think our listeners are not aware of when we talk about the polyoptics of marketing and advertising, especially when it comes to Facebook. When you take a look at your Facebook page and you see the ads that are there, you people tend to think that this is an shared experience, that what you see is what others see. This is a fallacy, right, guys? Yeah. Well, elaborate for a second, Christopher. This is some critical thinking that I think anyone who is not just a, a member of, of Facebook but also a member of the Internet population needs to think about all the time. The ads that you see are so carefully crafted just for you. It's a mix that nobody else in the world is going to get. I think that's kind of a cool, empowering thing. Other people might say that they're privacy concerns, but... If I know that the ads that I'm seeing are really hyper-relevant to me, and they're cool, and it's stuff that I like, and pages that I do want to go and click the like button on, that's cool. That's a neat thing. Um, it also means that when uh, you have specific advocacy issues, for example, as we deal with the QGA, uh, we can target people really specifically, and we can find within the group of people that care about or, or pertain to a specific issue. There are some people on one side that are already on your side and are always going to be with you. There are lots of other people who are never going to be with you, and we only care about that center band. Let's not put percentages on that. that I, Governor I, Romney I, I, was, I knew you were going to go there, Ron, and as you say, we should never say that we don't care about the other <laughs> folks. And I think that Governor Romney didn't really mean that he didn't care. I think what he thought and what he believed, and I stood with him on this campaign... Election's over. Stop trying to win ...was it for him. that... Uh, <laughs> was that uh, these people cannot be persuaded. And there are those who are open-minded enough. Uh, but but really what you're talking about, Christopher, is owning somebody's digital world. You create a reality for them that in the moment they tend to think is shared by everyone else, that they're turning on their machines and looking at their social media or you know their favorite uh, websites and that they're getting that same serving and that they're seeing, oh, this is really important. Other people must think it's important too. When the reality is, hey, brother, it's important to you because we thought it was important to you or we think you're important and so we've changed your digital reality. So one aspect of this is all the data that goes into making those decisions to targeting your audience. The other side of this coin, though, is the data that comes out of that experience. If you are a marketer on Facebook, you get really detailed reports based on geography and demographics and other information anonymized, of course, we never see anybody's real names, but we know a lot about the people that engaged with us or are most likely to engage with us. We can then take those lessons and we can take them offline. We can put them in other media. We can use events. uh, We can target that audience that we didn't even know that we could effectively target before Facebook told us that these people were most likely to click. And that's the point about having real data is that it allows you to be surprised. Right when you put out that when you take out that New York Times ad, you're never surprised. There's never anything coming back that allows you to learn something new. You know, in 2008, we learned that the people, the average person who watched a Barack Obama YouTube video was over 40. Shocking, right? Like that's crazy. No one ever thinks, but it's true. You know, it might have even been higher than that. I don't want to oversell it. Like and say it was 45, but I think it was something like that. Uh, so there's, you have to when you have real information, you can actually allow yourself to be surprised. And it turns out there are a lot of surprises out there. And I think when people realize this the most is when you buy a bunch of weird stuff on the internet you don't normally buy. You buy something for someone else, you let someone else use your Amazon account, 
and all of a sudden your experience changes for a couple of weeks. You know, maybe they're into something weird. Who knows? Maybe they're planning a vacation. But all of a sudden, your kind of that equilibrium comes is along thrown with a call off. from Bank of America telling me that there's been a regular activity on my my debit card. And in fact, in a way, there may be a way that a computer could tell your card was stolen before the credit card companies just by watching the advertising. Change. We've seen a couple of examples of this kind of big data research in the last year or so. Uh, the company Target got into a lot of trouble when it realized, based on purchasing patterns, that a young teenage girl had actually become pregnant before she had even told her parents. So they then began marketing these products to to her family and the, the father was not pleased. Turns out that the algorithm was right and he was wrong. The second example is Netflix. Over the past week, a lot of Washington especially has been consumed by this House of Cards, a 13-episode miniseries. Uh, that whole thing was based, of course, on a bridge series, but conceived because data suggests that Netflix users like Kevin Spacey, they like political thrillers, and they like David Fincher. So they spent $100 million that makes on sense because I feel like Spacey was miscast and it's kind of ruining the show. Yeah, that was big data driven. Yeah, well, look at that. I want to I turn this conversation uh, on its head a little bit because when we think about and we talk about what people don't know, what they should hopefully begin to understand about how corporations and advocacy and product marketing are using the tools uh, that uh, that we use, but they're using them in a different way to influence us. And then we start to you know maybe get a little bit scared because we realize we're being influenced and we didn't even realize it every single day in every single way. The three of us and Scott Tribitz as well. And and, and Scott, I want to I want to go ahead and bring Scott Tribitz uh, up here uh, with us. Uh, Scott Tribitz of Tricom Associates, welcome to the broadcast. Thank you, Adam. Uh, one of the things that you do that all of the rest of us here on Polyoptics today do is make visual communications in films. Isn't that right? Sure do. Um, one of the things that Arun, and he's really the, the foremost filmmaker among us, these videos uh, that are so prominent in terms of communication, both for websites that are traditionally print, journalistic sites, uh, specialty videos that go beyond what you see on the television news that are finding their way to network television news sites, BuzzFeed that's doing video, and now this news, and all of the other stuff. It's it's something that people love because it's easier to interface with. We're more visual beings. How important is this visual content? And do you think it's just going to continue to blow up? I think it is. I mean, you see more and more people explaining very carefully to you how they're big consumers of TV, but they've gotten rid of their television, right? And that's because there's enough content and there's enough way for them to find it now that they can satisfy that. We are incredibly, we're both visual creatures and narrative creatures, and movies combine those two things together in a perfect package. And so... I think anytime, and I'm sure Scott's going to reiterate this, anytime that you are trying to make someone feel something, not necessarily learn something, but feel something, there is no better way than a motion picture. And it's only going to grow. I have a 12-year-old daughter who, for a math class, uh, had to produce a video to convey to her community how to uh, uh, learn about problem solving and ratios and percentage. And her and her friends had to develop a script. They had to go out and shoot it, edit it, and put it on a website so everyone could watch it, grade it, rank it, vote on it. The things that we're all experts in are going to go away because every one of our kids knows as much about it as we do, and they feel it intuitively. Well, I'm glad that my kids don't do the kind of work that Scott Tribitz has been a part of on this State of the Union week. He's been out on the front lines. And, Scott, I want you to talk for a second about your most recent project. You said you helped a lot of people go to jail this week. Uh, sure did, been, been working with the United Mine Workers of America. Uh, they are in a struggle with uh, Peabody Energy out in St. Louis. Uh, Peabody created a company a number of years ago where they took all of their bad assets 
as well as a lot of their legacy costs and created a company called Patriot Coal. And the intention of Patriot Coal was to fail down the line so all these liabilities would disappear off the books of Peabody. And so while Peabody argues this may be a legal way to approach this, um, the United Mine Workers talk about it as moral. Is it moral? And the president of the United Mine Workers, who understands the polyoptics that you talk about, you know, in his speech to this group, talked about how all great movements marched and how all great leaders of movements had to put themselves on the line. So in his speech, he'll talk about how Moses marched. He marched to end slavery. How Jesus marched through the wilderness to pass the gospel. Um, how King marched to, to make civil rights happen. And so he's getting the mine workers to march. And every couple of weeks, we are going into St. Louis, and we are holding rallies, and they are marching. And yesterday, 10 of them took over the streets of St. Louis and got arrested. Uh, because nonviolent uh, civil disobedience we've seen work in the past, and it raises the issue. We had television coverage that we wanted, but more importantly, we used these tools that you were all talking about earlier. We were on Facebook with videos, with photos, with comments. We were doing live streams using iPads and iPhones so people around the country could watch the story live in real time and have dialogue on Twitter. And so using all of these social media tools, we're able to get the story out to communities where this is actually happening in West Virginia and Illinois, where these workers who gave their lives to build a multi-billion dollar company are being told the promises you were made you know, when you started working here, when your family started working here decades ago, those promises are going to be kept. You know, one of the things that you just touched on, which is something that you and I have talked about for years, is Scott Tribitz's, and, and really it's it's one of the cornerstones of Tricom Associates. It's a strategy. It's a philosophy that they have and that they share with their clients, that there's a big difference between national coverage and nationwide coverage. And what what Scott is talking about is that story being retold in markets all over the country for and by people of that community, vice, one voice speaking at a national level, i.e. the cable nets or the evening newscasts or one newspaper that purports to cover the entire country. Now, is it duplicative? I'd say absolutely not. I grew up as a local news producer. Christopher grew up as a local news producer. Um, And we know full well that most Americans who are granted this compliment of four or five local television stations, most of whom have a news department, plus all the radio stations. Each one of these folks is seeking to give content that's relative, relevant to their communities. And that's the kind of polyoptics communication you're talking about. Am I correct, sir? Uh, no doubt. You know, a lot of folks here in Washington, D.C. want to see their story in the New York Times or the Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal. And I tell them those are great places to be. And it's nice to get those national stories. But my philosophy is I want nationwide stories. I want the same newspaper in everyone's local paper across the country because I know to persuade a voter, to reach out, to move policy, the number one place that people turn to for news is their local newspaper, their local television station. So when I'm trying to generate stories, it's not to generate them at a national level, although I work hard to get those stories. I try to get that story market by market by market, and I try to give each of those stations a nugget of news on why it's important to their community. Well, let me just say that Christopher and I, who give counsel to Fortune 100 companies all the time on 
government spending their their ad dollars within an advocacy realm, not corporate uh, entities with consumer brands, but more along the lines of digital advocacy like Arun and Christopher and I have been talking about, we will tell them, look, for $150,000, one day, one full page in a newspaper is an unwise investment. I don't care if you've got a $5 million spend to go here, that we can do a lot more and go a lot farther and know a lot more about who we're reaching if we do it in a digital way. And, you know, we talk about polyoptics. This isn't just words. This isn't just radio or television ads. This is creating an emotional connection and showing the visual representation of a movement or showing people what what can be so... Arun, this is really what's at the heart of driving the kind of films that you produce. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're context-driven films. I think as you're talking about trying to give people that nugget, that nugget of context, it's, you know, I think... National news is very good at highlighting an issue, but they always have to remove it out of context in order to explain it to you. And so I think what all of these, not just local news, but also embedding it on a website so you can have text on the side that's different. All of these things are just ways to get context in here. And that's what people actually want. They hunger for it. And when they don't have it, they get a little suspicious. Scott Tribitz, talk for us for a second. Uh, your work with a variety of unions. I know you've been working so closely with the firefighters unions for years, uh, not just because you believe in them. They believe in you. You guys have gone a long way together. We've been on the opposite sides of political fights and campaigns, you and I. We are still very close friends. But talk about the polyoptics uh, and, and around unions and especially the firefighters in election years. Well, you know, people are probably familiar with the the gold and black of the firefighters. Firefighters 4 is a very popular brand when people are running for elections. And politicians reach out for that because they want to stand next to the hero. The firefighter is seen as a hero in every single community. They are the folks running into the buildings when everyone else is running out. And if you're a politician, you want that branding. You want what goes along with that branding of the firefighter support. And we see it in communities all the time. Um, they stand there for election. They want that branding. But then after the election, uh, they become under attack. They become the problems of government. They are the bloated government. Firefighters are overpaid. Firefighters get too much in pension. And so you see the optics one side where a politician uses them to run for office and get elected. But then on the other side, they start blaming them for the problems that we have. And we, we're taking those attacks on. Well, what did you think about the president's State of the Union address? And he made uh, very specific mention, as has uh, Vice President Biden in his uh, rollout of the president's gun violence campaign. And we hear it every day here on POTUS. It's the only place you can get unfiltered audio of what's going on. Uh, I know you're a huge SiriusXM fan. I always have POTUS on. Um, but but people who care have heard these comments. But, but talk to me about what it what it meant to firefighters and other unions to hear the president talk about this this week. Well, just hearing the president talk about rebuilding the middle class, rebuilding manufacturing, creating jobs. You know, this president has been a champion of those areas. He's been a champion of public safety. People criticize what role should government have. And I think all of us around this table and, and all your listeners probably can agree that at a basic level, can't we all sit down and say government should be for public safety and government should be for education? Those are two places where government should invest. 
Um, so all these folks that say there's no role for government, I would argue there is a role for government, and we have to look at those basic services. You know, President Obama has been a champion of keeping firefighters around the country employed through some legislation he pushed called the SAFER Act. As communities around the country became um, drained and they had all these deficits, he was giving grants to communities to keep public safety in place because if, if, if a community's not safe, if it doesn't have fire, if it doesn't have police, you can't send kids to school. You can't grow an economy of those places. So at a certain level, this is the role, whether if it's a state and local government or the federal government. Arun, uh, in the, in the, uh, I'm channeling my inner Josh King once again, and I think if Josh were here today, one of the things that he would talk about is how much energy goes into the White House Planning Office of Advance in helping to take the initiatives and the priorities that a president puts forward in the State of the Union and then help bring them to life in the days and weeks after the speech. Oh, it's the, a campaign. It's absolutely it, it a is campaign. a campaign. And the president has been out there uh, this week, Catherine, he was in North Carolina. He is moving from place to place. Yeah, moving down south, Georgia. So talk today. to us about the thoughtfulness and, and, and what you witnessed as being a part of that team that would help carry that message for the president post State of the Union. Well, it's like you have the blueprint, the State of the Union, but you don't have, like I said before, the context, you know? So it's like it is exactly a polyoptical mission, if that's a phrase we can use. Like, you go to find the pictures that illustrate the State of the Union speech. You find those factories that specifically tell the story. You find those individuals and you send the president to go talk to them. You are literally making the storybook, you know, movie version of the State of the Union. It's almost an enhanced State of the Union. It takes a couple of weeks and goes across the country. So, Scott Trivitz, if that is what the presidency, this president, and I will admit, I, you know, the president that I served and others I'm sure to come will aspire to, it is also the goal of Tricom Associates and your clients to try and create that polyoptic mission before and after. So where do you put your clients and where do you leverage from a polyoptics perspective the kernels uh, of, of initiative that came out of the State of the Union address? I think kernel is the right word, right? Because sometimes they put just a taste for one of your clients, right? Just those three words. How do you make those three words sing for three weeks? You, you were saying it earlier. Everyone, everyone that's in Washington, D.C. wants to hear their word mentioned. And once they hear their word mentioned, they're putting out a statement either thanking the president or shaming the president because he didn't address it the right way. Um, I spend a lot of time working in the area of manufacturing. The president, in his um, um, campaign speeches, talked about creating a new a um, um, uh, uh, hundred million um, new manufacturing jobs in in the next year. And so we were waiting to hear in the State of the Union when he was going to talk about that. While he never used the specific number again, he did talk about creating an environment for manufacturing because he knows manufacturing is the core to creating employment in this country and long-term employment because we know that jobs are not jobs. Manufacturing jobs are much better jobs than a lot of the service jobs being created today. And so that is where we're looking and we're going to factories around the country and we're showcasing how jobs are coming back here to highlight that in news stories all over the place, plus trying to raise reports that showcase case, what happens when a country manipulates its currency? But are you doing this visually? Are you telling these stories visually for your clients, Scott? We're doing it visually through events. We're doing it visually through video. We're doing it in what you talked about earlier. We're developing our own channels. 
I have told my clients, it's nice to be on CNN and it's nice to be on CBS, but those days are long gone. It is time to build our own channels using the tools you're talking about, advertising on Facebook. Love Google Ads today. We're using banner ads left and right to drive people to that content that you're talking about, the video content that you're developing. Using cell phones. I know the folks uh, at Revolution are doing great stuff using cell phones targeting specific streets and neighborhoods to deliver very specific content. Okay. Very, how, does, very specific line. how does that work? I have no idea how that works. So take an example. In, um, in California, uh, we were trying to reach uh, Hispanic voters on an issue that we thought was very important to that community. And so we're able to place Spanish language uh, mobile ads to people's phones who are on a specific commuter line in which we knew that community was using it. Uh, and so I think it's in a way of targeting people you want uh, and with information they want and trying to exclude others. So it just becomes very cost effective. Christopher Brown, uh, director of digital strategy at QGA Public Affairs, somebody who's had you know incredible experience with this. Talk about that level of specificity and where we are with visual messaging like uh, what Arun's talking about. Well, you know, as you mentioned earlier, before coming to K Street several years ago, I spent a decade as a television producer. And as TV producers, what we want to do is we want to create content that appeals to everybody. We want to get the biggest possible rating on the night your show airs. We want your newscast to do the most gangbuster numbers. That's not really the way it works in, in advocacy. you got to find the people that are really going to uh, have some resonance with your issue, with your cause, with your brand. And you create content that appeals specifically to them. If you're trying to reach somebody in, in a Spanish language format, create the most awesome content you've ever heard in a way that that they're going to understand and get and, and, and uh, right. don't with. just translate it into Spanish. Don't take right. it English it's a different experience, it. right? right? Well, no, and it has to be cool and it has to be authentic. But I think that consumers more now than ever before are not only willing, but excited to get engaged with owned media, branded content. If we can produce something on our own, they're going to trust it just as much as if they read it in the newspaper, frankly, or if they saw it on television. Uh, and, and we think that that's really powerful because we want to tell our own story and we don't want to be limited to 45-second live shots. Yeah, you know, at at the risk of uh, mentioning Josh King, who's not with us today here on Polyoptics, Sirius XM 124, the POTUS channel, this is something that has been sort of part of Josh King's manifesto for a long time, that any corporation uh, sort of has... Uh, 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 communications imperative in both directions. One is internal and one is external, and they're essentially channels. Uh, we know about internal communications and then public relations, but really, uh, and without going into uh, you know the work that Josh does when he's not here with us on POTUS, um, he has really taken uh, that 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 belief and 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 brought it to life by telling compelling visual stories and capturing a lot of people within the very large company. That that he works for, and I have applauded him offline for it. I want to do it here today because this is what we all strive to do too. Scott? There's no doubt, but one other point I wanted to make on all of this use of technology that no matter how good your content is, unless you develop the channel, no one is going to be as good as their database. Their database is what is going to drive all of this down the line. And I think you were talking about it earlier. Facebook is the king of knowing who and what we do. And so um, um, advertising on Facebook, pushing your message out on Facebook, and, the, and using all of these content tools, that's where the future is going. And it's your first concern, and your website's your second concern. If we're talking to young people out there who are starting an organization, whoever, I want to implore you to get this stuff straightened out before you pay someone to make your fancy work. WordPress, you know, uh, website. It's just not as important. 
Yeah, don't say that too loudly because Christopher and I make a lot of money doing that. Um, but seriously, uh, one of the things I want to mention as we sort of come to the end of what is a atypical episode of polyoptics uh, is that the 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 visual and stunning are the things that arrest people, whether it's artwork on the side of a building, whether it is an ad campaign that is accentuated by that crystallized ad during the Super Bowl, or if it's that one emotional takeaway soundbite moment from the President of the United States during the State of the Union, or for worse, that faux pas, that aqua-driven debacle that was uh, the search for thirst quenching by Senator Santorum. These things resonate with people, okay? They're the things that make us feel. They're the things that make us smile. And if we ignore that, if we think only about policy statements and substance, we are going to miss the boat in communicating with each other. This is how we like to be communicated to. And around this table today, we've had a lot of people who are very good at that. Arun, I'm really glad you were here uh, with us. Um, I want you to take a second to help people know a little bit more about revolution messaging. Uh, well, we're uh, Revolution Messaging. You know, we're a DC-based uh, communications firm, and we specialize in all, all forms of online and digital strategy. Whether it's making you a video—that's our newest thing—or uh, a website, or more, most importantly to us, uh, mobile uh, and cell phone technology, because this is the only device that voters carry with them 80% of the time. Yes, mobile is everything, and I, I want people to know that while Christopher Brown is the director of digital strategies at QGA Public Affairs, where I am also a director. Um, we like to differentiate with content. We recently hired Arun and his firm to come help us make a video. This is something we do ourselves, but really wanted to bring in somebody else who's a real expert at it to help us differentiate. That's what makes this work. There are Democrats and Republicans on this radio show every week, but the best practices, the friendship, the, the camaraderie that comes around doing the things that we all think are important can often transcend policy, and you can find common ground in friendship. Scott, you're a great example of that, because you're a diehard Democrat. I am a diehard Democrat. I also used uh, uh, his firm to do some um, marketing on, on mobile and learned a hell of a lot from them about mobile strategies and was surprised by a lot of the findings I, I learned about mobile strategies. One last thing I wanted to say, Adam, which is it, it is the visual. You know, I, I have done this for 30-some years. And the other day when I was standing in that street and those folks had taken over the street and the 10 of them were there ready to get arrested and in the background they were playing the music Amazing Grace, it really made a difference to me. It affected me. It was what we're there for, to try to tell a story to people. And I think it's affecting a community out there. And none of us are afraid to admit we all are affected by these things. We see, you know what I mean, whether it's a president's line, a stadium or whatever, none of us are too cynical, right? We all, we all feel it. There's a reason we all work in Washington. It's because we really love this stuff. I think we all do. We have a passion for it. It happens to be that we're also pretty good at it. But you got to love this business before you, you do anything else. I think just, you know, we, we, we hear the word transparency perhaps more uh, during the 2008 campaign and following it. Uh, and I think that the president has learned the hard way that transparency is really tough. That he, and I don't mean to knock the man because I think he's trying, and I think there are perfect examples of where he's failed miserably, but he's pushed it out into the open. People are talking about it more perhaps than they ever have. And that's why we do shows like this occasionally on polyoptics, because what we do is an art form, it's a science, 
but it's also geared to communicating. Don't think that we don't consider ourselves manipulators of the message. We know that we are, but you know what? It's all the better when you, who take the time to listen to POTUS here on Sirius XM, have a better understanding of how it works and how the people who are trying to do this work are thinking about it. And so with that, I thank you very much for being with us here on Sirius XM 124. That's it for Palia. 